0: Hi everybody! It's Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations, and oh God, it's it's spring, isn't it? I mean, we have a nice cool day for a moment. It's wonderful, and then a little rain. We need the rain for our spring flowers and. I'm just, um, I'm so happy because it was such a dreary darn winter. It really was. And um, to kick off um, the spring, we have two really fascinating people who are going to be on the show today. Um, One of them, many of you know, I'm sure, is Terrence Blanchard. And um, guys, he's got an opera coming up that he has written, and it's going to be shown this weekend, Friday and Sunday, so... Stay tuned for that interview. That's going to be the second half of the show. The first half of the show, um, we have a a, a wonderful woman who's with us, Ann Red, who does many different things. And we'll let her um, go into it. But one of the things she does is, is help with the volunteers at the New Orleans Museum of Art. And next week is one of my absolute most favorite events of the year. It's called Art in Bloom. We're celebrating 30 years. of. I mean, that, that makes me feel so old because I think I might have gone to the first one. Uh, but it is uh, a beautiful, beautiful event. It starts on March 14th. Next week goes through the 18th. And Anne is going to tell us all about it. It is all about flowers and green and decorative elements. And this year it's about fashion, too, because there is an incredible show. And a series of shows really about fashion that's taking place at the museum right now. So get your spring duds on and head out to the museum. But Anne, tell us all about it.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on tonight, Jean. I'm thrilled to be here to talk about Art in Bloom. I have been involved in it for a very long time as well. My mother, <laughs> believe it or not, was one of the first chairmen, and I was just a helper back then um, before I even got married. And then I chaired it right after Hurricane Katrina when we were so glad we could still uh-huh. do the right. exhibit and bring happiness and and flowers and life you know, to New Orleans and to the museum. And then this year we're celebrating our 30th anniversary in the 300th year of the city. So that's awfully exciting. Um, and as you said, it's especially exciting this year because alongside Art in Bloom, the museum is having one of its greatest exhibits it's had in a very long time that is called A Queen Within Adorned Archetypes. And it is a incredible fashion exhibit at the museum. One of the, really it's the, the
0: first one that the museum has done. It is. A lot of other museums have caught on to the fashion craze, but this is our first. And it's, it's, it's for me, it's kind of a marker of how much New Orleans is really becoming... A little bit more of a fashion city than it used to be.
1: It really is, and many of you may remember that the Metropolitan Museum of Art put on this incredible Alexander McQueen exhibit a few years ago, and it had so much buzz, and it was so popular with people of every background, age group, etc., and so I love that NOMA got on board with this and has a lot of Alexander McQueen fashions,
0: oh, as we well do. as others oh, others great. that you've
1: probably heard of, like Gucci and Gypsy Sport and others, and it's really avant-garde and fascinating and great and so I think it'll create a great backdrop and theme for all of the and inspire a lot of the creativity we'll see this year in the floral designs you will see over 75 designers (laughs) that will come in and adorn the museum with their um, floral designs 75
0: I know it's great
1: it's everywhere that's what's so fun on every floor in every room everywhere you will see them from children um, from the schools around town who do exhibits um, up through professional designers that are you know you read about in the magazines et cetera, to amateurs as well
0: Let, let's let's well, we've got to step back and 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 explain exactly what art and bloom is. Well, Art in Bloom is,
1: it it happens every year at the museum, and it is a special exhibit that lasts about four or five days long that starts with a fabulous kickoff party on this coming Wednesday night and then lasts through the weekend where visitors can come
0: in and see all of the designs um, that will be up through the entire weekend. But let's talk about those designs because for anybody who's not been there, so You're in for such a treat because when, when you say design, we're talking about absolutely over-the-top installations with flowers and trees and decorative objects and antiques and costumes and you name it
1: you're right and there are lots of different categories and um, they range from amateurs who actually interpret the art that's already in the museum with flowers which is amazing to see how somebody can come up with an arrangement to look like a painting it could be a painting of a person it could be a painting of a home and they will you know it becomes a piece of sculpture almost what they use then we have these very large tablescape arrangements where designers come in you and sort of create a table for lack of a better words sometimes it has chairs around it sometimes it doesn't, with these tremendous floral arrangements in the center or the whole entire, almost the coverlay of the table will be some sort of floral design. The, the, um, the chairs could be even be made out of um, organic, you know, material. Then you'll also have other displays. Um, a business may want to do something really elaborate that showcases what they do. And this year with this Queen Within fashion theme, I think we're going to probably see a lot of you know elaborate dresses made out of flowers and headpieces oh, right. made out of yeah. flowers and things like that. I remember a few years ago Suzanne Perone, who makes a lot of the queen 's dresses for the carnival balls here in town. she made this huge dress and collar and crown and everything that was all made of organic of material flowers. and it was incredible
0: it 's what what I love about it is that you just get all kinds of great ideas for things that you can do in your own home, maybe not quite so elaborate, but the 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 building blocks are there for how you can decorate your table for a dinner, how you can decorate your home for a party. I mean, I, I come away from those things just with ideas just pouring out of me. This, yeah, and especially with Easter
1: them. coming up and things like that, you can get great ideas of how to exactly decorate at home and do something really interesting for your family and guests, um, as well as, you know, For somebody like me that maybe floral design doesn't come just naturally, you know, it's fun to try to copy or mimic some of the things you see. Maybe you can't do it on quite as grand a scale, but it will give you an idea to go home and try something or, you know, just experiment with color or different types of flowers that you never really thought went together.
0: You know, I've been buying flowers um, on the day of my paycheck since I got out of college from my very first job on... The very first thing I would do on my Friday night after my check was in the bank was buy cut flowers. That said, I am the worst flower arranger. I'm sure that's not true. It's true. I don't, I just don't really, it's it's weird because I I do decorate a lot and you haven't been to my home, but it's, you know, it's pretty elaborate with art and, and, and things, but for some reason that, Art of I mean eventually I get there with something that looks like something but um, it doesn't come it doesn't come naturally.
1: And one neat opportunity is um, on Thursday um, of next week on the fifteenth um, we have two lectures at the museum that are part of the art and bloom um, uh, curriculum if you will for the week and um, we're having a very acclaimed. What time are they? Um, they, I believe they start at 9.30 on Thursday morning is the first lecture, and um, then a second lecture follows right behind before there's a Saks Fifth Avenue fashion show um, afterwards. But one of the... Um, one of the, the Wait, spe- don't
0: slough over that. There's a Saks Fifth Avenue fashion show at what
1: time? It's at 1230 at the Pavilion of Two Sisters. And Saks very kindly every year puts together a fabulous spring fashion
0: show. Oh, I remember it now, yeah. And this year okay. it will
1: feature the fashions of Leela Rose, who is actually one of the speakers, one of the lecturers. I'm
0: not familiar with her. She's Lila an Rose.
1: American um, Southern um, fashion designer. She grew up in Texas and lives in New York now. And her clothes are very feminine, and she uses a lot of floral Pattern, so it's a natural. Right. And we
0: also will have um, – is, is that a fundraiser? So is that a fairly substantial price tag on that event? Um,
1: or? I think the prices for those – for the luncheon, I believe, is $125. And the lectures, I think, run maybe about the same price for both lectures. Okay. But, yes, um, th- they're used as fundraisers. Fundraiser. And yeah. also you get a full lunch and, and wine and everything with oh, your lunch wait. on so lunch, Thursday. So wine, and you contribute it's a pretty, to the
0: museum. It's, it's a, pretty a pretty good, good deal, deal yeah. actually, Yeah.
1: But one of the morning lecturers will actually do a floral um, workshop, and his name is Charles Masson.
0: I I maybe need to do that. (laughs) And he
1: is incredible. He comes from La Grinouille Restaurant, which is a famous restaurant in New York where they are very renowned.
0: We were just talking about La Grinouille the other night. Somebody said, Jean, you know, you really – I said, I've been there it's a it's kind of a it's kind of New York Scalatoise in a way it is it's yeah. very
1: elegant I've only been there very. once years ago with my grandmother actually but they do beautiful floral displays and he was there for a long time um, and has recently Oops. opened a few other um, restaurants um, uh, called and which um, one go ahead I'm sorry oh. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the new... Oh, Marjorelle is the new restaurant in New York where he's doing a lot of the floral displays as well. But anyway, he's going to be doing Uh, a floral workshop. Which time is he? Um, I believe he's at the 9:30
0: time slot. I, I'm going to have to do that. I really am because maybe I can get some hints. Because I love flowers, I truly do. That's why I'm doing this show tonight. I said I love them.
1: And they're it's great just... with mechanics, and I mean, he really—they get into the nitty gritty. So it really helps, you know. You um, take home—it's really a lesson. Besides okay. seeing something beautiful be yeah. done right before your very eyes.
0: That's great. Good. That's one. That's one thing I. I, I would really like to check into. Now, you mentioned before Alexander McQueen, and I, I, I am such a, a McQueen fan. I have a book that the woman who wrote the book gave me because um, I was in London a couple of years ago. Um, one of my, I don't go travel very much, very often, but I happened to be on a trip for the Creative Alliance uh, because of the uh, River Festival that they do there, and our children from our schools here participated in doing design. So I went there, and, and it just turned out that a woman who was really related to the project was the woman who wrote the book about Alexander McQueen. So I have that in my possession. And his clothes are, they're like our Mardi Gras costumes. They are so over the top, so wild, so, as you said, avant-garde, very, very creative. It's really a sad story that a man who was so creative died young. He committed suicide. He was, I think, probably bipolar, and that's usually what happens. Many brilliant people are, yes. And it's yeah, just heartbreaking. It was, and, it just, um, but, his, but his clothes are fantastic. So they're going to be included.
1: They are. And they they truly are works of art. And yeah. the way the curators have put together this exhibit, it's just just the exhibit itself is something to see. Forget even the actual objects that are in it because it's so amazing. Um, there are these all these vignettes and interesting ways they've displayed them that will just – Um, scintillate your imagination and um it's so well done and the the space is not so big that you feel lost in it you really get drawn into it the curators are there they're constantly giving you extra information they're happy there's docents giving private tours all the time which will continue to go on through next week including during art and bloom and so you can really dive in and really learn a lot and um it's truly a feast for the eyes
0: you know this is a good spot in the uh, in, in your talk to talk a little bit more about the museum and some of the other exhibits because you know I, I'm a, a long time museum goer before we went on the air. I was talking about how as a young um, uh, girl growing up in new york we we had the custom of going to museums it was a regular thing unfortunately today with all the special exams kids have to take they don't get to the museums as much but and so, therefore, I think people become kind of intimidated about museums but the but the New Orleans Museum of Art is really quite intimate. The rooms are not big, and it's easy to get around it and You can elevate her up and down. you know when I go to the Met in New York, you gotta climb <laughs> all these banks of stairs and it's it's really a labyrinth of a building to get around but this is a very um, manageable kind of space. So tell, tell us, tell the audience a little bit about the kind of exhibits that are in the museum that are there on a regular basis.
1: Well, you make a great point, Jean, and there's a, there's a lot of, there's a permanent collection, but there also are also a lot of changing exhibitions at, at all times as well. There's some credible Renaissance art that's on the first floor. Upstairs, you have a great contemporary collection, a lot of Impressionist paintings. You have some antiques. You have, um, you also have some incredible African art. Asian art on the third floor that's really... Big
0: collections of big African collection. and big collections of Asian.
1: And so there's really something that would appeal to everybody um, that you can see there on a permanent basis, um, as well as a lot of, of, of Louisiana art or Southern art and also um, an incredible collection of silver, if you're interested in silver. Um, so there, it's it's really an exciting place to explore. Oh, and pottery, a lot of Newcomb pottery and, and beautiful... Um, So there's really something for everyone to see. But just currently, besides the um, Queen Within exhibit we discussed, there's um, Lee Freelander, American Musicians, which is... um, So
0: Lee Freelander is a a photographer, and he's from New Orleans, so his work is is very resonant for people who live here. I mean, I think uh, if you want to see um, how a a photographer interprets what we experience on a daily basis, Lee Freelander is one of the people you want to see.
1: Yes, he was associated with Atlantic Records, so many of his um, photographs are part of of musicians. Um, There's also Roar Anders Wickstrom, who brings fantasy to Carnival, um, and he is remembered as a designer for his elaborate Mardi Gras productions. And this exhibition includes watercolor sketches, sketches for parade floats and costumes from his works with the crew of Rex and Proteus. And this is it,
0: this is some of the early early designs. And again, I'm I'm kind of a little bit of a carnival design junkie, and I have all of the books from. Oh, help me. uh, um, Henri Schindler? Yeah, um, uh, Henri Schindler's books. And one of the books that has some of the old costume designs and the float designs, they were amazing. They were utterly amazing.
1: (laughs) And they really set the tone for many of the carnival organizations that we see today that, you know, try to emulate what they did.
0: Frankly, I have to say say that they outdid us. Yeah. No, we have more lights and bigger floats and, you know, uh, longer floats and... Um you know, very again, very dramatic, but the, the real beautiful artful stuff that they beat us.
1: There's also So a, to see
0: that in the walls of the museum I think was a a, a treat to it is, and that's yeah. on the
1: second floor. Um there's also a Japanese ceramic um uh exibiz- excuse me, exhibition as well from the Gitter Yellen collection. Um it showcases selected works by masters of modern and contemporary Japanese. Um, artists. And so that's really, really exciting and different and neat to see. And this family really has an incredible collection that they were very kind to loan the museum.
0: And, and one of the things that I think is important about Japanese ceramics is um, that may seem a little esoteric to some people, but actually if once you've seen Japanese ceramics, you can never go to a craft fair Without having that standard in mind, it informs you as a appreciator and as a buyer and, and actually as a maker. A lot of people during the, the course of their education dabble in making ceramics. Once you've seen the uh, very, very elegant, very simple sometimes, but very elegant Japanese ceramics, that informs how you look at, at pottery, you know, at, at, a, at a fair, at a flea market for the rest of your life. And speaking of clay and
1: ceramics, many of you know John Bullard, who was the long-term director of the museum before wonderful, you know, Susan Taylor came and is now there. But John was, you know, truly an icon, is an icon of our city and did so much for that museum. And a connoisseur. And he has um, given an incredible gift of his clay and ceramic um, collection to the museum And his exhibition charged the major figures in handmade studio pottery from 1940 to the end of the 20th century. So that is a real treat to see. And, uh, you know, we're all just so grateful for that incredible gift that he gave. Because besides just the legacy he gave of his leadership.
0: And again, um, I've I've seen that exhibit a couple times. The the most fun I had was when Kevin O'Keefe, who's a young ceramic artist uh, working today, Um, who, uh, by the way, just launched his walk to Maine on the Appalachian Trail. He's in my newsletter. Um, He came through and explained the work, and he's a ceramic artist, so having him talk about the work was phenomenal in sort of seeing things that you would not see in your untrained eye. And he can tell you, oh, this is how this was done, and this is how that was done. That was a fascinating walkthrough that I went to recently. What was it, about three weeks ago?
1: I would love to go through the museum with you. I think we'd have a great time, and maybe some <laughs> of the listeners would like to sign up for that too, because you're um, you know so much as well, and it would be a treat I to love go the with stuff. you. Yeah. Another thing that I I have personally enjoyed. I spend a lot of time at the museum volunteering, and so I'm in the Great Hall a lot, which is the beautiful big room when you come first come into the museum. Is that um, recently um, there was an acquisition? Um, of ten important works um, from the Souls Grown Deep Foundation through the Foundation's gift purchase program where we were able to acquire ten pieces that um, that are from very important African-American artists from the southern United States and are now on display in the Great Hall, and they're just fantastic. And, Tell me the
0: name of the show again.
1: Um, I don't know that there's technically a Souls. name of it. I just know that we were able to... Um, to include 10 works of art from the souls grown deep foundation souls grown Grown deep Deep. yes and um and through their foundations gift purchase program we were able to acquire 10 of these works so they must help compile them and then help museums or collectors purchase and they're really terrific and um, I was out at the opening for the Alexander McQueen um, a few weeks ago, The Queen Within, and they, we were, they sort of held us in excitement before they opened the doors. We were all knocking each other down to get in and see, and I was really enjoying um, looking at all of the, of the art in the Great Hall. So please don't do like I did while you were trying to just run to the back. Make sure you enjoy everything all over the museum, but particularly note these incredible new pieces that are on the walls. In, uh, in the main hall is that is that, uh in the great hall
0: i, I think that's probably not the it's not the first time that the museum has purchased the work of African american artists because they've been doing that for years, but that may be one of the biggest collections that they've bought isn 't it uh, you know,
1: I'm not sure of the answer to I that. But I know you're right that there
0: are, um, you know, lots of
1: artists, uh, lots of art that represent African-American artists as well as artists from all over our country and world. But these, I think, are the largest recent acquisition. As I said, they were just um, acquired in 2017. So um, very exciting, mm-hmm. very exciting to have them. That's and, great. And they're, they're contemporary and they're colorful and, um, and, and
0: they're very joyful. Yeah. And, of course, the sculpture garden next door to the museum—what an experience that is! And I'm so proud of of Sydney and Walder Bestoff for what they've done and and, this, and the role that Susan's now playing. But um, you know, Sydney, when when we, we first um, borrowed the Contemporary Art Center building from him um, in 1975, um, he, he was not that heavily into art, and so again. Through the uh, development of the CAC in that building, it kind of brought him into the arts, and then next thing you know, he's made the commitment, and look what he's done with that sculpture garden. It is, you know, what whether if if you don't care about art you've got to enjoy the Sculpture Garden. The Sculpture such Garden a
1: is wonderful. It, it's open every day and it is free entrance to it, so it's a great place to bring your family.
0: I didn't know it was um, And
1: yeah. it is one of the most important sculpture installations in the entire United States with over 60 sculptures on five acres of land surrounding the museum. But what's exciting is it's going to even get bigger and we're about to start phase two where we'll double our or maybe even triple our acreage and many more sculptures will go in and it's so exciting and again, And like you said, it's just such a gift of the city. But you can go and have a picnic in there. You can wander around. You can your children can you know, there's plenty of open space, run around and play amidst all the beautiful live oaks and the sculptures. You know, on a day when you're coming to City Park to enjoy it and you know, um, so i I really recommend that people and, and
0: to have the um, the sculpt garden there. next to the botanical garden, which again, in and of itself uh, again flowers' it's, it's such a beautiful place, but the um, Enrique Alfaez. Um, Sculpture Garden in uh, the Botanical Garden. That is another incredible gem and just a beautiful experience to go in and see this very, very, I think basically very sexy work, quite frankly.
1: It is. (laughs) And the Hellas Foundation has been a a great supporter of that. And they did something wonderful for the museum this year as well that I want all of our listeners to know is that – They have sponsored a program whereby all teenagers in this year, till the end of this year, can go, have free admittance to the museum. So, admission. So, um, please bring your teenagers and bring them out there, or teenagers come on your own. You're very welcome. But, till the end of this year, um, you will have free admission.
0: That's, well, and maybe he'll re-up. I hope so. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? (laughs)
1: Yeah. But I think it's just an effort to get more people excited about art. And, and, and. And um, and inspire them and um, expose them. You know, it's so important for students. And student groups are brought out all the time to the museum. But a lot of times they tend to be children from younger age groups because they don't, you know, mm. maybe they, don't you remember when you were, you were little you tended to go on more field trips when you were older? I think that just happens a now, lot. Yeah, when
0: we were in high school in New York, uh, we we went to all the museums. Yeah. But it was a different time. It wasn't with all these exams, again, that the kids have to prepare right. for
1: now. So it's great to see, because they, they're probably feeling that a lot of school, you know, younger, elementary children are getting into the museum, and so this would be a way to entice with free admission that um, teenagers could come into.
0: I want to talk for a minute about your volunteer program, because um, this is something else that, um, you know, a, a lot of people, uh, either in their older years or in their younger years, who are not so heavily committed to an intense work, Life can spend time in the museum and, and really be of service to the city, but just enjoy meeting all the different kinds of people that come through a museum. Again, it's just everybody that goes to, uh, ultimately. You think of oh, it's only for this kind of people or that kind of people, that is just not true. It's for everybody. So t- tell me a little bit about the volunteer program, and if somebody wanted to volunteer, how should they do that?
1: Great, um, NOMA has a wonderful docent program and if you're interested in becoming a tour guide, um, they have a great program where they train you and you come out and you can, you know, um, guide tours as, as often or as infrequently, depending on what's your schedule and what's going on in your life, uh, as, as you would like. It's a wonderful group of people. They train you before each of all these exhibits that we talked about today, as well as on the permanent collection that we also talked about. So that's an incredible opportunity. There are also opportunities to get involved with the many fundraisers, you know, to keep such a wonderful um, museum afloat and to acquire, to, raise a lot of money. Yeah, to acquire new pieces and bring all these exhibitions. You have to raise a lot of money. And we have four signature events a year. One is Art in Bloom, which is a fundraiser. One is the Easter egg hunt, which is coming up on March the 24th. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity. 1,500 children usually attend every year. It's only $15 um, a head. I just want to put a plug in for that and for a three-hour party and an Easter Easter egg hunt. So that is an event. Um, Love in the Garden, which is a September event where we recognize and honor a lot of our local artists and just have a big party in the sculpture garden. And then Odyssey Ball, which is sort of the signature event of the museum, which is in November of every year. Um, by serving as on the volunteer committee, you can work on any and all of those events. And you can do everything from, you know, um, decorating to um, soliciting for funds to um, helping you know rest with the restaurants I mean there's so many things you can do we put together 18,000 Easter egg hunts right after Carnival. It was a great way to spend a couple of days if you were detoxing, although we ate a lot of candy, so we might not have been drinking, but we were eating candy. But you can there's all sorts of ways you can be involved and, and find a place um, for yourself. And if you're interested in getting involved out there, um, if you go to NOMA.org, there's information about the volunteer committee, or you can call the museum at 658-4121, and they can tell you how to get involved
0: there as well. 658 Four one two one. I think one of the beauties also of being a volunteer is that it's it's a cl- it's a family. It's a it's a whole cohort of friends. You get to meet a lot of people. You get to spend time with them. You get to meet new people, make friends. I mean, it's a uh, this camaraderie in the people who work together there.
1: It is, and that's how I got involved, just by doing some small volunteer jobs, and I loved it so much, and I love the people out there, and they were so welcoming that it just wants you you want to get more involved. Um, oh, and back to flowers. Just to go back full circle to Art and Bloom. <laughs>
0: yeah, one of the listen. jobs
1: of the docent, uh, excuse me, of the volunteers is every week they do the flower arrangements that you see in the Great Hall. So that's a fun committee to get on because you can learn from some masters and and then try it at home. That's one so I maybe the, do. <laughs> so that's a, that's a neat opportunity to yeah. volunteer as well.
0: I um uh I want to go back to as you said the Art and Bloom because that's what we started out with and that's what we're promoting here. It starts next week. Y'all, I'm I'm telling you, this is not just for the garden fanatics of the world. It is just a incredible visual display for anyway. If you bring your kids to this event, they are going to be, they'll never forget it in their whole lives. They will remember the beauty. Um, it's it's a big, extravagant, fabulously. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's just a, a huge production and a lot of fun. So let's go back to the times and dates. Um, it starts on the 15th of March. and The preview party
1: is on the night of March the 14th. It starts at 6 p.m. at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It's cocktail attire. And you will, um, and it's a beautiful party with over 30 local restaurants that are incredibly gracious and donate food. Um, there'll be lots of libations. There'll be music. There'll be a incredible live auction of art, and then you'll have the opportunity to wander the entire museum and see all the displays, including all of the exhibits. All of this is uh, is sponsored by Iberia Bank, and we're so grateful for their ongoing support. That's and it. then, and then on the fifteenth on. Thursday, we have the lectures and luncheons we talked about in the morning. But the exhibit will be open all day to view exhibits. And then the exhibits will run um, all all day Friday, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday. So if you're not able to make it out on uh, Wednesday night, um, you can come through th- over the weekend, bring your children over the weekend, bring your family, your friends, Friday everyone out. Friday night, too? Um, Friday night, there's always a fun program at the museum, and I'm honestly not sure what the program is Friday night, but that's free and open to the public and loads of fun as well.
0: You know what, I just want to tell people that Friday night is also, it's a wonderful uh, way to spend your evening. You come in, you have drinks, you um, enjoy the, whatever the programming is, and then I always go into the little restaurant and have my dinner.
1: And they have an incredible special on Friday nights. So it's usually a glass of wine and a pizza for something like $10 or something at um, at Ralph Brennan's um, Cafe. I think it's called Cafe Noma. I love it.
0: And splendid job. It is a splendid event. I I'm, can't tell you how much I love it. You all have to go. And um, I appreciate you very much coming in to talk to us about it. Well, uh, we – You the, have a blast
1: with it. The museum is thrilled to, to be um, – to come out to WBOK
0: tonight, and thank you in particular for having me on the program. I enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming. I am going to um, give you a little bit of setup now for uh, Terrence Blanchard. Um, So the thing I want you to know about this interview, this is not an interview, actually. What happened was Terrence was talking last night to young opera supporters at an event at the Trio Bar on Tulane Avenue, which is kind of a real fun place. Um, On the second floor, they'll do events, and, and he was talking to an audience, so... This is not going to be the best audio in the whole universe, guys, because I took it off the um, speakers. But actually, um, I think that um, Jazz, you told me that it, it's pretty good. It, it, it you, you'll be able to hear it fine because, in fact, the sound quality was good. And and Terrence is an amazing speaker. He covered so much territory in terms of. Writing opera, all the people he worked with in, in, in putting it together and how everybody helped shape what came out to be in the end. The, the, the opera that he has done is about a fighter. It's called Champion. And it's a very, very emotional and, and powerful story. And, um, I mean, I think he's one of the best. He, you know, he's done most of the scores for Spike Lee films and for many others. He's won Grammys. And, and who knew his dad sang opera and played opera? And so it's, it's something you don't necessarily think of our musicians as being involved with opera, but he is. And by the way, y'all, you may think opera is again something that's only for fanatics who love opera, but um, I was never a big opera fan, but when I went to my first one, the powerful production and the singing and the music and the dance—again, it's just a lot of entertainment for your dollar. So, think about going out Friday night and Sunday matinee to see Terrence Blanchard's opera. And now I want you to hear what he has to say about it. Listen to him; he is just a beautiful speaker.
2: 222nd year of opera in New Orleans, the 75th anniversary of the Opera Association, and that is the history of opera in New Orleans, and the history of jazz presence, and your thoughts about what it is that led you to do what you did, which was to create this wonderful contribution to American music, which is unique, um, an opera in jazz, as you chose the title we are eager to hear you speak. And then I'm heading, and I hope you are too, to the dress rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> thank Taking place tonight at the mahalia Jackson. So the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, guys, for coming out. It's an honor to be here. Listen, man, it's an honor to have a production being uh, put on the stage here in New Orleans, uh, especially at the Mahalia Jackson. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when that place was built, and uh, I was there uh, yesterday for a rehearsal. And it was a little overwhelming for me because, uh, like Robert said, this is kind of like a coming home for me or returning to my roots. Because even though I'm a jazz musician, a lot of people don't know that uh, my father uh, studied opera and was uh, an amateur baritone and I sang around the city all the time and uh, at church events and recitals and I heard a lot of opera growing up uh, in the house in New Lawrence. At the time when I heard it, I really didn't understand it. I thought it was a little strange, you know, in my community, we were the only household that had opera playing in the home. Um, And when my friends would come over, I would rush them by the piano to go to the back, and my father most likely was sitting at the piano singing. Um, But for this to be the culminating thing in my career right now is a a powerful notion for me. Um, My father's no longer with us, but um, it's still a very emotional thing whenever I see this production. because this is really the direction he wanted me to go in, you know. He wanted me to be a classical musician. Uh, I became a black sheep by being a jazz musician. Um, He was still proud, he he still loved it, but I know if he were here, we'd probably have to tie him down to keep him off the stage, Uh, if he would want to be a part of the production. Um, But having said that, I'm very proud of this work uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, because of the story. Um, I've been a fight fan uh, for a number of years. As a matter of fact, before I came here, me and my assistant uh, Nina, we just stopped at the boxing gym and I talked to some trainers who actually come into the Apple, which is kind of cool uh, for them, and for all of us actually. Um, and when I first learned of Emil's story, I thought it was a very powerful one. Although, unfortunately, still a very relevant one, you know, um, one of my good friends, my best friend, his name is Michael Ben, and uh, he was a heavyweight champion. He beat Tommy Marson for the title in the 90s, and he had told me about uh, Emil's story. And I just kept it on the back burner because I thought it was a very powerful story, uh, a very human story. And when Opera Theater St. Louis wanted to broaden their audience by um, combining jazz and opera, they approached me about the project and they initially wanted me to do an opera about Hurricane Katrina. And I just felt like that was a little too close because I remember if you guys, I don't know if you guys guys probably had the same experience I did with the TV show Tremaine. I was excited about it. Uh, I was actually at a friend's house where we were having a party for the night of the, the first episode, and uh, when the show started, there was silence in the room because we started reliving, you know, all those horrible moments in our lives. And I kept thinking, you know, I think Katrina is a little too close for us to deal with as a topic. So I proposed the story by Emil Griffith, and when I first brought it up to today, they thought it was gonna be a boxing opera. And I said, no, we don't wanna really do that. And I'm like, hey man. So we sent them the book. Uh, it was autobiography 9, 10, and 9. And in the book, there's a line in the book that really, encapsulates. That, I mean, it just brings it all together about why I wanted to uh, do this. He says in the book, I killed the man and the world forgave me, yet I love the man and the world wants to kill me. And to me, that's a very powerful statement. And um, it still rings true for a lot of people. Um, just a little background on who Emil was. He was a welterweight champion. He was a reluctant champion. We call him a reluctant champion because he didn't really want to be a fighter. He just wanted to work. And when people saw his physical attributes, some guy said, listen, man, you should think about boxing. He was so physically gifted that I, I'm, I have to really check this, but I, I think he started boxing like maybe about seven or eight months after he started training, which is really unheard of. It takes years just for people to learn how to move around the ring, let alone have a professional ride. Um He got to the point where he fought this guy, Benny Perret. They fought twice, and each guy had um, won one of the fights. So on the third fight, they wanted to uh, figure out, okay, this is gonna be the third and deciding fight. And in the press conference, you know, at that particular point, um, everybody's trying to get an edge on their opponent. And in the press conference, Benny Perret used a very derogatory term for gay male, for you And uh, Emil couldn't understand why he was saying this. Because even though Emil never called himself gay, but he had relationships with men, it was still a very private thing. Um, This guy was from the islands, from St. Lucia. And he was a very private person. And even though a lot of people in the industry, in the fight world, knew about his private life, there wasn't anything that they sensationalized or talked about. So for many to out him in public like that was a huge deal for him. Uh, he had a premonition the night before the fight that something was going to go horribly wrong, and uh, actually tried to get out of the fight. I think one of the, 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 the amazing things about this story is that there's so many elements that came together to make this a kind of horrible tragedy. Um, because one of the other elements that was very important that uh, you is kind of unheard of today. Benny Perrette had just had a fight like two months prior to this fight. He fought a guy by the name of Gene Fulmer. And Gene Fulmer was a very heavy hitting, brutally punishing type of fighter. And we know this now uh, that Benny wasn't really healed totally. He shouldn't have been in the fight. He shouldn't have had a fight at all. But when he got into the fight with, with Emil, obviously the press conference was still weighing on Emil's mind. I'm just going to put this conference hanging conference kind was still winning on his mind uh, and you can actually see it in the fight uh, in the seventh round Benny Perret backs into a corner and the mule goes after him and we have the line in the opera he said he hits him 17 times in less than seven seconds which is kind of like a miraculous thing it shows the kind of hand speed that he had uh, Benny was knocked out um, and never regained consciousness Um, They brought him to the hospital where he fell into a coma for 10 days and died. Um, The sad part about it is that a lot of times in the fight world, all the hype leading up to the fight is about two guys who hate each other, who really want to go after each other. And that's all just designed to sell tickets. Because these guys were actually really friends. They used to play basketball together, in you know, up, uh Upper east side of New York. Um, and it hurt Benny to his heart that he couldn't, he wasn't allowed to see, I um, hurt Emil, I'm sorry, to his heart that he wasn't allowed to see Benny while he was in the hospital. Um, after that event, Emil tried to have a career, he still had to survive. And there's a documentary you should watch. It's called Ring of Fire. It's it's like really an amazing thing to see. Uh, And in the documentary, they talk about how he was affected by this, obviously. And by the way, it was actually on during what we used to call Friday Night Fights, which was live fights on television in the US. And because of that fight, boxing was taken off of live television for about 10 years, I think, after that. Um, But when Emil had uh, subsequent fights you can actually see it he would be in a fight and they showed him where one opponent was backing into a corner and normally the pro fighters, if the guy is backing into a corner he's in the corner, you can really go after him, well Emil didn't do that he would back away you could still see the ghost of Manny Perret was haunting him um, so it was during the later years where he became, I think he was a security guard in a boys' where he met um, a young adult by the name of Luis who became his lover, who he actually adopted as his son because back then, the only way for those guys to have legal recourse, if anything happened to Emil, was to adopt uh, Luis. Um, now, I think the most important thing about the story for me, uh, it hit home when I thought about the first time I won a Grammy. Um, winning the Grammy is, is, is a Grammy is, is a huge honor and it's something we just had the Oscars of and you saw how people would get excited when the name was called. Well, when my name was called the first time, uh, without thinking, you don't think about it. I turn to my wife, I give her a kiss, and I have, and I go out and I receive my award. Well, it dawned on me that Emil could never do that. It was a sad state of affairs in my mind that uh, this guy became multi a champion of the world and could never share that with somebody he loved openly, you know. Uh, and I think it's still a shame. So The cool thing that I love about this opera is the story, first of all. Um, The other part of it that's phenomenal for me, and I feel very blessed to have had this experience, is the work with great singers, amazing singers. You know, the singers that are gonna be here, most of them were in the original production. Arthur Woodley, R.B. Ellicott, uh, Robin Orth, you know, those, are some amazing voices. Then we have Karen Slack, who's gonna play the role of the mother, who is just phenomenal. Uh, She's a Philly girl. I told her don't talk about the Eagles while you're here. (laughs) You're not allowed. (laughs) I love you, but don't know no green and white stuff anyway. No, no, no. Um, But when we first did it, you know, we all kind of felt like fish out of water because Denise Graves was the person who did the original production. And uh, I was nervous because I had never written an opera before. Let's just be real. I ain't got no shame in my game. (laughs) You know I'm telling you. I walked into the first (laughs) workshop with the singers, and I told them, I said, hey, man, I'm new to this. (laughs) So if there's anything y'all need to tell me, just lay it on the line and say it because I'm trying to learn and I want to get better. The singers were freaking out because they thought I wanted them to be like Sarah Vaughan and improvising to do these serious jazz lines. Well, the cool thing about this production, man, and I want you guys to understand this when you see it, is that I get the credit for writing it, but it was a true collaboration between all of us. You know, um, I'll never forget Arthur Woodley who plays the elder Emil. I was walking by one of the practice rooms one day, and he was going through his lines with a pianist. And he said to me, he said, hey man, uh, hey man, do you mind if I do something with this line here? I'm like, dude, no man, you're the pro. You know, I'm the one learning. I'm trying to figure out, I'm, I'm accustomed to writing for orchestra, writing for jazz bands. I don't have a problem with that. Writing for voice, that's something new to me. Um, so he said, all right, cool. And he would make little changes and I would make suggestions. And that's how we slowly whittled away at this thing. You know, Denise, the same thing. One of the things you'll you'll hear when Karen sings it, uh, far away long ago is one of the artists is just with her and bass. When I originally had written it, I had written it in the style of like maybe Ella Fitzgerald and Ray Brown doing a ballad together, right? <coughs> but with a certain type of pulse that you hear in jazz bands. Well, when they started doing it, they said, hey, man, can we be a little more fluid with it? And so they took the tempo away from it and made it very rubato, and I think it's gorgeous because the line, or the tempo, I should say, is always dictated by what's happening in the storyline of what she's singing. Uh, and that's a new experience for me. So. There are a lot of little things like that in this opera that make it very unique and and a worthwhile thing. Uh, Just a little bit about the the, the production itself. Michael Christopher wrote the libretto and one of the things that he did was, I think, a brilliant idea of to tell this story in three layers Um, because in the documentary, Ring of Fire, it's all about the elder email. As a retired guy and he's actually suffering from dementia, going to Central Park to meet Benny Paret Jr. Right? And in the documentary, you see them in the park. And there's a moment in the park where Benny Jr. says to Emil, just from the family to us, we want to let you know we don't harbor any ill will towards you. And Emil cries like a baby in the documentary, and you can see that he had been carrying the pain of killing this man all his life. Well, what we do with this opera, the opera is, we call it an opera in jazz, in 10 rounds, because you actually have a bell. we have an announcer who, who will announce certain things in certain acts. Um, but the whole opera is based on Emil Sr., or the elder Emil, going to see Benny Perel, and the entire opera is a flashback of his life. And what you will see in the production is that the elder Emil is always on stage moving around. We have three Emils, the elder Emil, Emil the fighter, and Emil as a little boy. Um, And I thought it was a brilliant way to tell a story to keep things moving as opposed to trying to do it in chronological order like that. Um, And Jim Robinson, who's doing the directing, just come up with some brilliant ideas of little subtle things. I don't know if he's going to do them in this production, but there was one scene where Emile, the fighter, is meeting his mother, who gave all of her seven children away, right? To be raised by other people, and Emile went to New York to live with his aunt, and he all, all of a sudden he sees his mother, and she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's one of the other kids. Well. In that particular moment, there's an ira that she sings called Seven Babies. But when Emil, the fighter, is standing there looking at his mother, you can tell he's upset. What Jim did, which wasn't in libretto, and I thought it was brilliant, he had the elder Emil walk around to his younger self and put his hand on his shoulder to say, like, everything is gonna be all right, and then push him towards his mother. And to me, it's a very powerful moment, and there are a lot of powerful moments like that in this particular production. I gotta tell you, I wrote it in 2013, and I still cry at the end of it, every time, because of the, the, the acting and the singing is just off the chain. And for it to come to New Orleans, man, I can't tell you how overwhelmed I am by that. It's not lost on me, the importance of this, because one of the things that I've been saying Uh, A lot is that I am a product of this city. I am a product of the public school system in this city. I am a product of all of the efforts of people who love art in this city. Osceola Blanchett was the guy who taught my father opera. He was the organist and pianist at my church. He was the guy that whenever I had to go to rehearsals for my dad at his house, I had to play my piece on piano before they started rehearsing. You know what I mean? This is the type of people I grew up around. Roger Dickinson was my my composition teacher who taught me how to write very complex and very uh, uh, advanced music from the time that I was 15 years old. And he didn't, and the thing that's brilliant about it, I'll just tell you this story. The thing that's brilliant, and the reason why I'm saying this is because I think all too often we don't celebrate the talent that we have in in our town. And this guy is brilliant. He taught me something called, If I Could Tell You I Would. And it's a little phrase that he used to teach me this complex concept. Well, when I became older and I moved to New York, he sent me to his friend, another great composer, by the name of Hale Smith. And Hale Smith, when he started to teach me, Hale Smith said, you need to get this book called, Crafted Musical Composition by by, uh, Paul Hindemith, right? When I looked in the book, when I started to read the book, I went, wait a minute, this is if I could tell you I would. Right? And I came back and I showed Roger. I said, hey, man, what's up, dude? Why didn't you tell me about this book? And he said, oh, you were 15. I didn't want to bog you down with terminology. <laughs> I teach, I've been teaching for over, for about 15 years now at the college level. And I have students, okay, BMI has a composer competition. I've had three three to five students win that competition by teaching them if I could tell you I would. (laughs) That comes from this city. It's a product of the intelligence and love for art. And that's the other reason why I'm glad I came here because I grew up in a period and I grew up around people who loved music, who loved opera. some of them will be at the show. I'm very excited about that. But I want to thank you guys for coming. I want to thank you guys for supporting the opera because it's an art form that I think is so misunderstood in so many ways. Um, I call it the greatest form of musical theater now. Uh, I've been saying in my interviews, it's 3D before 3D. (laughs) You know, um, To watch these performers move around stage, singing at the highest level of musical accomplishment with a great orchestra, is uh, an experience that there isn't any equal to. Um, And one of the things that I'm proudest of is, with this production, is that we've been creating diverse audiences for opera. And I think that's extremely important because I think so many people have felt kind of left out of the arena, in, that, in those terms, uh, in, the, in that realm. And it's something that's interesting to me because like I said, I grew up around so many people who love the music, still love it, still talk about it to this day. Um, so to see this diverse audience here, this is exactly what we're striving for you know, in this city. And uh, I hope you guys really enjoy it. Um, the guys are working hard. I was at rehearsal yesterday and I was getting goosebumps all over again, you know. Uh, and it's, you know what's weird about it? It's like this is the fourth production of it and I still get nervous and I'm like, I hope it sounds cool. But Everybody in the production is amazing, trust me. Uh, I don't think you will be disappointed. But I want to thank you for coming out tonight too. Uh, and I got to thank Where's Robert. I have heard yet. Oh, he laughing. All right. <laughs> Damn. Okay. I want to thank Beatty. I want to thank everybody uh, from New Orleans Opera because this has been a this has been a journey, um, but it's hopefully the be- the beginning of something uh, unique in this city. Uh, thank you very much.